Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, it what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right? Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writerly in nature. This is readerly in nature as well. It's good to be with you. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, and I'm on Vicodin. I'm on Vicodin. I'm currently under the influence of Vicodin. Can you hear it in my voice? Uh, I had surgery this past week. I had a hernia of all things, which required me to go in and to be anesthetized. And then they perform surgery on my stomach. They had to stitch things up and, you know, so now I have this, uh, Vicodin prescription to help me deal with the post-surgical pain and discomfort. So if I sound a little strange, uh, a little medicated perhaps in this episode, uh, now you know why uh, the reason I um, may sound a little bit medicated is because I actually am a little bit medicated. So, uh, let's do some tweets, shall we? Let's, uh, let's read some recent tweets from my personal Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. Uh, I will read them to you now while under the influence of Vicodin. Are you ready? Feel like at any given moment, 250,000 people on Earth are sitting there, wishing 
They were birds. If you put a polar bear in the jungle, wouldn't it just adapt? It's just a white bear. I'm a double chin waiting to happen. I think I have PTSD from Facebook. Just said, killer whale, in the voice of Keanu Reeves. Reality show about a guy who drinks two gallons of water in New York City and then tries to drive to Los Angeles on camera without peeing. What if I made finger steeples while giving a PowerPoint presentation to a room full of venture capitalists and then went suddenly fetal? Feel like everything would be different if my name was Carl. Okay, uh, I think that does it. I think that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed uh, my tweets. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Teddy Wayne. He is the acclaimed author of the novel Capitoil, for which he was the winner of the 2011 Whiting Writers Award. Uh, He's also won the Young Lions Fiction Award from the New York Public Library, uh, as well as the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. He's a very talented, very funny writer, and his latest novel is called The Love Song of Johnny Valentine. It'll be published by Free Press on February 5th of 2013. Uh, Very pleased to have him here on the program. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Teddy Wayne, and his new novel is called The Love Song of Johnny Valentine. I'm in uh, north of the East Village in Manhattan. Uh, I've got right in my living room now, looking out the window, which actually has a view of the Empire State Building, a little north and west of here. Oh, you have a view of the Empire State Building? You have to 
like crane your head a tiny bit to see it's not like it's a direct view at my window where I'm inspired every day <laughs> by those things that inspires or anything. But yeah, I, I do have a, it is a, a classic New York City view to extent. Okay. So, and you've lived in New York since when, since you got out of school? Well, I, I'm from New York originally. I'm, I was born in Yonkers and moved to Riverdale in the Bronx um, when I was 10, which is nearby as well. Um, so I'm from here, but never lived in Manhattan or, you know, what, what people consider New York City uh, as a kid, and then moved back here after college, and then was has been here since then with a three-year break uh, in St. Louis for grad school. Okay, and so, and the graduate school was at what, Washington at St. Louis? Yeah, Washington, St. Louis. Okay, and then that was, a, that was like an MFA program? It was. It was it's a two-year program where they let you stay a third year to teach. I think they're still doing it, which they only started when I was there. I thought it was going to be two years, but then they they broke me in and others in for a third year. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk because, you know, I've been, um, you know, prepping for this interview and reading up on you and uh, it's impressive. Like you've done quite a bit and you've published in so many different uh, places like the New Yorker, New York Times, Vanity Fair. I mean, I'm just reading the list. Um, I'm curious to know how you've managed to do all this. Like, uh, can you talk about how you uh, have worked as a journalist and how that process goes for you and how you've managed to, you know, be relatively successful at it at such a young age? Sure. Um, I appreciate the relatively successful qualifier. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it looks more glamorous than it is. Um, I had no intentions or aspirations to be to do journalism or anything like that at all, ever. And never worked in the school paper, uh, not even in high school or college. And then in my early 20s, and I, I should also say, maybe going back further, I always wanted to be a fiction writer, but didn't even do all that much fiction writing until taking tears until I was like 24 or so. I never took a, I got rejected from all my creative writing classes in undergrad and didn't, didn't get in. Um, so I never had a chance to practice it in a more controlled environment. Um, but then in my early 20s, I started doing humor writing, which is something I, I dabbled with when I was younger. Short, you know, New Yorker, Shouts and Murmurs-esque pieces. And began writing more and more for McSweeney's, McSweeney's website. I guess it's about 2004, so when I was 25. And I did that, I, I, I took to it very quickly and really got into it. And I was writing, at first stretch, like one or two even human pieces a day, which kind of blows my mind now. I feel like I wouldn't have that productivity now. And after doing that for like 18 months or so, uh, John Warner, who I think you interviewed, right, earlier yeah, on the show. Yeah. Um, actually, I should say that's how I became aware of you. He posted it on Facebook, and I think it was fairly early in your in your tenure. And I started listening to it after that, after he posted it. Um, he started helping, like, maybe people would come to him asking if he has recommendations for, for writers, and he would mention a name to a couple of other editors, and it started leading to other work that was paying work for for print magazines and, and so on. And then after doing that for several more years, I started getting more opportunities to do journalism, which I had no experience with, but sort of felt like I could fake my way through it and the the dirty secret of journalism is you actually can fake your way through it. Um, it's if you, if you've been reading articles your whole life, which I've, which I've been doing, 
as just a consumer of newspapers and magazines, you have a you develop a sort of built-in sense of how an article looks, and then that went from there to sort of voicey pieces that were maybe first person to just more regular, straightforward journalism even now and then. Um, so it was a very gradual climb and one that I hadn't intended on, on pursuing. Um, I'm glad it worked out because it's now a sizable part of what I do in my, in my daily writing life and of my income. But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't at all uh, accidental, you could just say. I find that that often happens. Like when I talk to people, like a lot of the things that, that have happened in their careers have been sort of happy accidents, like right place, yeah. right time. You know, I don't know. It's just, it's not always that way, but a lot of times I hear that it's like just kind of intuitive or I don't know. Sometimes it's just dumb luck too. Well, like life sort of tells, teaches you if something is coming and working for you, continue it. And if it's not stop. Um, so there were probably other, there were other avenues I pursued when I was younger that weren't working out. Like I actually thought I was going to be, or was trying to be a screenwriter in college and after college, I wrote a bunch of screenplays when I was, when I wasn't undergraduate and then afterward, and I had no idea what I was doing and nothing happened as nothing should have happened. And I kind of stopped it and then switched over to fiction writing. And had I somehow gotten lucky and had a script sold when I was 19 years old, which I was trying to do, I probably would have continued down that path, and then you know none of this would have would have occurred. So how so, how serious were you? Like you were nineteen, you're in college. Where, where did you go to college? I went for a year to Wesleyan in Connecticut, and then transferred to Harvard after that. Okay, so you're at Harvard. You wrote a screenplay. Did you like actually pursue representation and try to sell the thing, or was it less? Yeah. Well, I was at, even that freshman year. I was writing it, uh, writing one, and I knew. Um, a, a close friend of mine, his brother is, is an actor. Um, I, I don't, I shouldn't say his name, but he was, oh, come on. He was a child actor. No, I can't stop. It's no, a ch- no. Wait, let, it's, let, let me, let, let me at least try to guess. It's a child actor. He was a child actor and now he's a real actor, a real actor. He was a real actor then, but now an adult actor. Um, you would, you've seen the movie he was in. I don't want to say this. Okay. I don't want to say his name. Okay. But he was in a, in a huge movie when he was younger. Um, wasn't like the the star of the movie, but he had a he had an important role in it. And he was having something of a career renaissance. Then I guess he's a few years older than I was. He must have been in his early twenties. And I wrote a script that, in hindsight, was horrendous, but it had something going for it that he got interested in, and his manager did. And I was nineteen and had not understood the ways of the world yet, which is that when people tell you something will work out, especially in Hollywood. Um, that means it won't. Like <laughs> the more, the more they're they're excited about it, the more your the greater disappointment will be a few months later. So I wrote the screenplay and it was a mess. And I'm, I assume I can't. I don't even have the screenwriting software to view it anymore. But I'm sure it, I would never want to look at it again. And it got far enough to, you know, his his agency or some. I think I remember William Morris read it and had a script reader read it and I saw the report and it was a really damning reader report um, and I but I continued writing these for a few more years always with him as the my connection and thinking well maybe something will happen with him uh, and nothing did but I you know I'm sure 
that process was different in some ways, something about figuring out how to write or being disciplined about it. I read a lot of screenwriting books at that, in that era um, to learn how to do it. And I, I do think reading that screenwriting has been formative for, for novel writing, especially by narrative. You, you mean from a, from a structural standpoint? Yeah, I really, like the book Story by Robert McKee is a real touchstone for me. I think that's a good book. I think that's as helpful to fiction writers as any other fiction writing manual. Uh, and a few others were, uh, I think they tell you about how to actually tell a story, which is, I believe, the hardest thing that fiction writers can do. I think most fiction writers are very good at micro, on a micro level. They have good observations. They notice details. They're good with language. And that's what usually gets you into wanting to be a writer. But I think we're usually less um, on less sure ground about how to structure a compelling story over 300 pages. So, okay, so when you sit down to write a novel, um, how much of, uh, like, the screenwriting... Because the screenwriting process, like, it, it's, a, it's a much more... Uh, rigid structure, you know, novels just seem a lot more unwieldy and with a, with a screenplay, it's like 110 pages and you sort of know yep. that going into it. And, um, the mechanic, like you say, the mechanics of story, um, are a lot more important and are a lot more explicit in the writing of a screenplay. So, um, when you sit down to write a novel, are you doing beat sheets and outlines and the kinds of things that screenwriters often do in terms of your plot? Somewhat. I, I was. I've never been like a, a flashcard maven, that sort of person who, who puts everything out in color coded structures and diagrams. But I do have outlines, and I think I do write. I hope this doesn't make my book sound like sacrilegious Hollywood knockoffs, but I write with a three act structure in mind: a beginning, middle, and end, and and think about the story as 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 that Aristotelian structure should dictate. Um, and I'll, I will like outline, I, I found what works for me is once I have a general idea of what I'm working on, a, a loose outline that I start filling in the gaps for the more I, I go along with it and allowing myself some latitude and some flexibility and room to improvise along the way. But I like having checkpoints to hit as I go through it. And I, I've never, I've never some new, I would never write a novel where I just, go from start to end, not knowing where I'm not knowing where I'm going next turn. Well, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, but how much of it changes? Like when, do you sit down and have like a, a general three act, um, you know, simple outline that you don't really deviate from, like you pre, you preconceive it and it's pretty close. The finished product is pretty close to what you preconceived. Or do you find that, you know, you start there and then you give yourself the, the latitude to make significant changes. It's well, I've you know, only published, now two books, so I don't have a wealth of experience to draw from. But so the outline itself is, is can be pretty blank. It might be this character goes to this place, and I'll then it's up to me when I write it to figure out what happens there. So it might not. It's not like he goes here, gets the secret potion that opens up the drawbridge. You know, it's not like this convoluted structure there. Um, but I do think. I probably don't change it too much until maybe I've gone through a first draft for the first, my first book, Capitol. It was, I'd written out a complete draft that my agent tried to sell it. And this is, I guess, January, 2009. It was, he sent it to about 10 or 11 publishers and they all rejected it. And they had a bunch of 
reasons for it, but nothing consistent. And I sent it to a, an older writer I know who looked at it, who correctly pointed out that the last third of it or so was was really thriller-like in its structure, um, or felt like almost like a bad Hollywood script. Um, and I went through and then revised it pretty intensively and changed that like last third, last quarter of the book or so, among other among other changes. So for something like that, I'll certainly change it. But yeah, as I'm going through it for these two books that have worked out at least, I don't think I've been drastically revising along as I go along. Well, okay. So, I mean, yeah, that's just, it's just interesting how people work. Like some people, uh, some writers I know really do preconceive and then other people, it's like they, every single day they're just making it up as they go. And it's this really kind of intuitive process. But I feel like personally, if I could ever get to the point where I could really outline, it would make my life easier. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if I could do that. I, I, yeah. I've seen some friends, I've seen some friends notes where they'll have like Excel spreadsheets and, and really complicated note-taking systems. And I think that's actually overkill. I feel like then you destroy this, any spontaneity and it's like you're writing a computer program instead of writing a novel. Um, but I also think if you do the, if you do the totally spontaneous version, you're probably just force yourself to do a lot more work later in revision. Um, so I, I, like to think what I'm doing is at least ideal for me in this middle ground where I have some chance for creativity along the way and some sense of structure before I start. But yeah, different people, different strokes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so talk about Capitoil in this sales process. Like when you went out, uh, when your agent went out with the book and 11 publishers rejected it, um, where were you emotionally at that point? Was it like super devastating or did you, you know, or are you like really well adjusted and you found yourself just like, uh, you know, doubling down, <laughs> becoming more <Yeah>. determined? <laughs> well, I, I, before that, she'd also tried to sell another book that I wrote when I first started writing fiction when I was 24 or so. Um, another book in the fall of 05 that I just, I'd finished and I just started grad school. So she's trying to sell this book novel I'd written before I got to grad school as I was just beginning graduate school. And I still remember like going to class the day of the, of the closing of it um, when a few publishers were still in play and like, you know, wanted to check my email afterward to see what my agent had written about this novel. But anyway, that one did not sell and she sent to everyone, including a, a ton of small presses. And Thank God it didn't. At the time, I was devastated, but I'm so glad it didn't happen. It was also, like my earlier screenwriting efforts, abysmal. And, I, I, you know, I want that never to see the light of day. Um, <laughs> at the time, I was, I was, you know, not, I didn't have the foresight to know that this was good for me. Um, so, evidently, I rebounded and wrote this, wrote Capitoil when I was in graduate school, too, and used it, I think I'd written about 180 pages which I used for my graduate thesis. Um, so I was in my third year there just teaching. And no, yeah, when it, when it got rejected by everyone, I was uh, you know, maybe even more so devastated because this is now the second time in a row that it happened. And it, it's not so fun to have written two novels at 29 that have both been turned down. And I was, you know, it's my last year of the relative safety our safety net of graduate school and soon we had to figure out what I was going to do next. 
Um, I know it's probably, you know, I was moving back to New York City afterward, which is not the easiest place to pay rent if you don't have any kind of career. Um, so it, it wasn't good. And it took me a little while to recover, I, I think. But I have, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I've experienced so much struggle and setbacks in my life or professional life because I compared most people haven't. But I've, I've had a fair amount of professional rejection over the years. Um, and I think it just, it hardens your, your, your hide. And the only way to, to be okay with it is just to, just to be okay with it. Okay, so when you uh, when you got the eleven rejections for Capitol, and then you take the book back and you do a significant revision, um, was there a point at which you you it clicked and you were like, okay, now I've got it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like, yeah. if you, like you you talk about like this uh, this early novel that didn't sell, and you feel grateful for that now. You talk about these early screenplays that, um, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, weren't very good. Um, at what point did you f- feel confident? Do you know what I'm saying? I guess you felt confident with all of those things when you were working on them at the time. But what was different about Capitol, um, you know, on the revision, the version that eventually did sell? I, I, I actually couldn't probably say that I was feeling confident, given how shaken my confidence likely was at the time. I, I thought I'd done something interesting with the, the language the narrator speaks in this techno-financial jargon. And I thought that was for sure the thing that would lure readers eventually and then before that editors in. Um, but even of those first 10 or 11 publishers, several of them, I, I want to say maybe like three to five at least, said they didn't like his voice. And that was the thing that actually stayed consistent after the revision. That wasn't what really changed. And it was enough editors saying this that my agent suggested I see what the book looked like translated into third person in a normal narrative voice, which I did a page or two of and just it, it lost everything that made the book potentially exciting to someone. Um, so I, I really didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what, how to improve it. Um, and I wouldn't say I it clicked ever in that way that in terms of my own confidence in it, um, she sent it out. She had to send just a smaller range of people in the fall of that year because we'd used everyone up earlier and the majority of them did go for it. So something had gone right. Um, but it may have just been, I think it was the turning the, the book less from a plot driven novel, at least the last third or so into one that focused more on the main character and his relationships with others. So I, I, I don't, I don't think I ever, and until then I was, just on tenderhooks, not knowing what would happen and had no confidence in it, which is probably going to always be the case with any book. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that makes me feel better in some way because it's just like on, on the surface, um, you know, you, I look at what you've been able to accomplish at a relatively young age and I think somebody could like, uh, you know, take a look at your bio paragraph and be like, oh, it's just been easy street, but it, that's almost never the case. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, the actual sale, and you finally kind of, uh, you know, get there. Like, what was that moment like for you? You get a call from your agent, and she says it's sold? Yeah, she was, I think, letting me know some people seemed interested. And I think this is maybe December 2008. So it was also right at the, after the publishing industry crash and American economy crash. 
So things weren't looking bright for, for anyone, especially not in the, book, in the book world. And I think she let me know one publisher um, wanted to talk. And then when I talked to the editor there, he said, uh, you know, I, I can't guarantee it, but most likely we're going to make an offer on this tomorrow. He did, as did uh, a few others. Um, it was, it was, I'd actually say more relief than elation. <laughs> I was really worried. Yeah, I think that, that's a standard response for a lot of people. I was really, you know, I, I, again, I'm not going to do a sob story. It wasn't like I was going to be evicted onto the streets if I didn't sell this book. But it was, I was thinking about maybe if this doesn't happen now, I should give up this idea and, and, and pursue another profession. Um, and maybe on the side, continue doing this, but this might not be, if I've done this, try this tw- twice in a row and I'm turning 30 in a few months, um, maybe this is not the safest way to, to continue things. And you've since changed now that you've had a couple of books, um, you know, sell, like, do you feel completely committed to, um, writing as your livelihood? Yeah, I'm committed. I mean, I would have done it. I would have continued on a side still with that too, but I would have, I think I would have looked into another full-time job and, but you know, a year later after selling it, I was running low on funds again. I was again worried about what was going to happen. Um, and, and got saved when I, I won an NEA fellowship, um, which bought me some more time. So my, my theory is that every time, maybe when it looks darkest, someone comes in with money from outside and gives it to you. And I hope that continues for the rest <laughs> of my life. That, that seems to be the only way to do it. Yeah. I'm waiting for that. I need that to happen to me. Um, yeah. So, okay. Just, go, just do everything you can to lose everything and it'll happen. <laughs> right. it, always, it always works out. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to, I want to dial it back a little bit um, regarding uh, screenwriting because yeah. there's, there's a, there's an interesting moment that I want to ask you about. And it's the moment at which you decide that this isn't working and mm-hmm. you decided to shift to fiction. Like how, how finite of a moment was that? Like, was there some event or something that happened or was it kind of like a grad, gradual fade? Like, did you have like a come to Jesus meeting with yourself where you said, I'm done with this, I'm switching to fiction and you know, this is why, or like, how did that happen? Yeah, there was a different moment. Um, well, I'd always wanted to write fiction and had it since I was in maybe third grade and at, at an early age decided I wanted to be a novelist when I grew up, but I just wasn't really putting in work directed towards that. Whenever there's like a creative writing option in a class, I would take it. Um, I just like fancied myself a future fiction writer. And at a certain age, you realize I actually have to do this if I'm going to, the future is now. But I remember I was on, I was in San Francisco visiting friends when I was 24. And I'd been talking about with a friend from college who was herself a, a sometimes fiction writer. She was working then but, you know, she always worked fiction in, in college as well. And we're talking about it, and I said, well, how about I just, like, start a novel right now? And at, while staying at her place, I started writing the first few pages of that novel that would go on to be rejected by everyone. What was it called? Uh, what was it so called? It had a great title. It was called The Future Perfect. The Future Perfect. Which, yeah, or maybe just Future Perfect. I think I was going back and forth about using the article, uh, but... It was a good title and a bad book. Um, and and I started then, and I remember getting back to New York, and I think I wrote a draft in eight months, 
it was not that long. It was like a 200 page novel and then pursued, you know, agenting and all that stuff. And I think, I can't remember when the last screenplay I wrote was, but it couldn't have been much longer, much more before that. Maybe it was a year or two before that. I had a, a number of years in my early 20s. There's a certain gap where probably a year or two where it really wasn't clear what I was doing in terms of creative writing on the side. Um, I think I was, I think screen screener was, was petering out as doing other jobs to make ends meet, but wasn't doing much on the creative side of things. Okay. And then uh, regarding journalism, like if, if people are listening and they're thinking to themselves like, God, I'd love to write um, a Shouts and Murmurs essay for the New Yorker, or I'd love to write for uh, McSweeney's or Esquire or any of these publications that you've written for. At this point in your career, do people come to you and give you assignments or are you actually going out and soliciting um, these various publications? Like, how does, how does that work? And what would you recommend to people who would be listening yeah. and might have an interest in that? Uh, it's, it's, for me now, it's both. I yesterday got my New York Times editor in the style section assigned me or asked if I would be interested in doing an article. Um, but before that, the various things I'd written, I've written two things for her, for instance, before that, both of which I pitched to her. So it usually takes a little while to pitch to like, give you an idea so they can trust you or they've worked with you before. And it it does vary with different people. Um, but most of the time, it's me sending them for humor writing, which is a really niche field. That's almost always me writing it first, the whole thing first, and sending it to someone. But once in a while, you get asked by, by publication to write something funny. But the problem is that you never know if it'll actually be funny or not, so you need to see the final product. And... It's again, maybe it looks good from the outside, but from the inside, I can tell you, for the New Yorker, for instance, I think I submitted stuff for five years to them before anything got through, and then another like year between the next one and another year after the next one, um, or the New York Times for the op-ed section. I remember getting something in over the transom when I was in grad school, so I was like 26, and being so excited. And then three months later, they took another piece, and I thought, oh, this is, I'm on easy street. This is, like, going to be forever the case. And then I think it was, like, another year to the next one, and then I, I think I actually submitted something like 50 to 60 different things to them before they took the next one. Um, so, yeah, it always looks good to people on the outside because they just see that they actually gets published and think how great, you know, this just seems like a, a cakewalk. But when you're the one doing it, you know how many more times you rejected and even, I don't want to say even now, as if I'm like on top of the world or anything, but I would still expect rejection far more than acceptance for any kind of journalistic work now. Have you gotten better at handling it? Like, do you, have you ever dealt with like depression or anything where you've, I mean, obviously it's depressing when a book doesn't sell and there's like a day of that or whatever, but have you ever been like really laid low where you like weren't getting out of bed? <laughs> not not depressed so much as, as frustrated or I remember, but, uh, you know, there's also a silver lining that a couple of times things have been rejected sort of last minute and all of the, the rug pulled out from under me and they ended up in a better place afterward and it turned out to be a boon in disguise. Um, what I do, what I do whenever I get an email back or, or anything like a, a, an envelope from a place that I've been applying to something for something, I, there's a, I think it's maybe, have you seen the movie, uh, House Party? 
<laughs> the eighties movie. Oh man, it's it, I mean is that kid play? play? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, kid play. I think it's from that. It could be from I think they also did like they have a movie called Class Act or something. They did a bunch of movies that were all fairly interchangeable in that like late eighties, early nineties era. And it, it could be from one of those movies, I'm not sure, but in something one character somewhere says, Well fuck you too at a point. And whenever I get an email before I open up the email, I either say out loud or in my head, well, fuck you too. <laughs> and then it makes it a lot better when I open it. If I got rejected, I feel like, all right, that's, I, I said fuck you too to them beforehand. Right, right. You preempted. Yeah, preempted fuck you too. So uh, I don't get like, you know, hugely depressed. I think I just, I, I think I've developed a thicker, harder shell from this that I know it's part of the, the process and it's not fun, but. I usually either say out loud or, or if I threw someone else, I'd say, oh, well, bummer, but that's life. So, and, and it sounds like you're pretty, I mean, you, you seem pretty prolific. Or like, do you have a really good work ethic? No, that's, again, a, a misconception <laughs> from people and friends who think I'm usually prolific. For one thing, I'm not usually having to do anything else. I've had other jobs. I taught last semester, and I've had, uh, as recently as a year or so ago, copy editing work that I would do on, on the side. But you know, the, I write a lot of these humor pieces, which are short and don't take that much time. And sometimes can whip one out in like an hour or so. And so it looks like yeah, something published, so it must have taken forever. might have been like an hour of work. Um, so, uh, you know, I, if I could, my schedule is not, I'm not, hugely regimented. I don't wake up at seven in the morning and start writing until one, do something. And I, I more like try to get in a, a certain number of hours per day usually. And it just so happens that the fields I'm in tend to be fields in which you can produce more work rapidly than say people who write long form journalistic essays where they're researching for months and months and traveling everywhere. And it might take them a year to write a whole article. Oh, right, right, right. So, and when you say these humor pieces, like, uh, like who, who are you writing for? Like the humor pieces, aside from the New Yorker and the shouts and rumors? Um, for them, the New York Times once in a while, uh, McSweeney is still, I do like this unpopular proverbs column for them that I've been doing for several years and occasionally write full, full blown pieces for them. And then other things are often in, there aren't that many outlets for it. And sometimes they dry up or they no longer want to have humor in their, in their magazine or whatever. So it's not that many places. So it, it's fortunate that the, the, the few that I write for regularly are, are well-known outlets that a lot of people read, but there isn't actually much of a middle ground. I wish there were more places that accept this sort of writing. So, yeah. And then talk about this type of writing, like the short form humor piece. Like how did, how did you discover that you had a knack for it? And like, what were you reading um, you know, as a young person that might have led you down that road? I think it was less reading and actually more watching a lot of TV when I was, when I was growing up. I, it doesn't make you sound all that erudite, but I watched a lot of sitcoms growing up and, and like stand-up comedy and just was always drawn to comedy on TV. And I especially, I really grew up in the age of The Simpsons and Seinfeld, um, you know, 90s irony and I, I feel like that if I had to look at 
one influence, I'd probably say the, the Simpsons influenced me as a writer, maybe more than any other real, you know, individual author. Um, in terms of the, the very high concept irony they use, it's almost like logic games for the Simpsons. And just, I haven't watched it in years now, but, you know, I watched it religiously growing up. And I didn't even aspire. I think that, you know, actually I'm, I'm wrong. When I was 18, I did write a Seinfeld script in high school, um, like a, my own Seinfeld episode, and did nothing with it. But I was, at that age for a little while, wanting to be a sitcom writer when I grew up. Um, so I was focused on that. And then in college at Harvard, had the Harvard Lampoon, which is probably the best-known undergraduate humor magazine. Uh, and then my junior year, I tried out and also got rejected, again, deservedly so. I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing not great stuff for them. Um, but I had an interest in this and then kind of dropped it for a few years. And then when I was 25, a friend brought me to the New Yorker Festival they have every year. And they had a, a Shouts and Murmurs event at which various writers for the magazine would read their Shouts and Murmurs pieces. And it was so funny, and I was so entranced by it that I decided to start this up again, something I'd you know, dabbled in in college but never really pursued. And then that's when I hooked on to McSweeney's, which seemed like the best place to write for since they democratically really do look at everything and anyone has a chance to get in. And um, just started doing more reading McSweeney's every day. And then how did you get, and then eventually you just started, I mean, you started submitting, and was it a pretty quick acceptance process or did you have to you know spend time trying to break into McSweeney's yeah I just wrote an essay about this it's fresh in my mind uh it was I think I got three or four pieces rejected before John Warner uh took one and then there's probably another three or four until he took the next one and then I got into more of a groove in which I was writing pretty frequently submitting frequently um so it was I think it had been a, a type of writing that I'd been preparing for my whole life, but had not been explicitly reading specifically that. I'd been doing things like watching the Simpsons. <laughs> I'd been prepping by watching The Simpsons my whole life for this and then found an art form, I think, that played to some strengths I'd been building up without even realizing that I was building them up. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's such a specific skill set. Like when you sit down to write a humor piece, um, like, you know, I mean, obviously we we talked about your novel writing and how you have some idea of structure before, you know, you, you sit down to do the actual nuts and bolts writing. With the humor piece, is it less of that and more of just intuitively, um, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, how does it, how does it work for you? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of the same. Like, I'll, I'll have an idea and humor pieces function off premises. It's always, almost always a what-if premise. Um, so to give an example of, of one I wrote, um, uh, what was the recent one for the, for the New York Times, I wrote something, uh, forget the Oscars, it's the Peaches. This ran a few weekends ago and it was, what if like a gossip column, instead of talking about the upcoming Oscar nominations and speculating on them, treated it as if school teaching, high school teachers were like the actors of our society. So for the teachers, who was going to win best teacher of the year or most supportive teaching assistant? And what will this hunky Spanish teacher wear to the, to the award ceremony this year? 
year and that last year, his Dockers set everyone's hearts aflame. <laughs> so it's like a, you get that idea, and then it's actually, once you get a good idea, it's not so hard to come up with, all right, what are eight examples, eight jokes I want to make here? And so, um, like like the high school, there's always like, what does Clooney wear? What is Clo- who's, br- who's Clooney bringing to the ceremony, and what's he going to wear? But then just make it instead, in this case, a Spanish teacher, or, you know, what's the controversial film of this year, Zero Dark Thirty? So use that idea and make it the controversial um, teacher who's up for an award that everyone thinks is torturous in his in his detention practice or something. So you kind of like run down a list of, of ideas quickly, and then um, there's some definitely a lot of room for improvisation, a lot of polishing. But I, I've noticed with these things, if they don't come together within an hour or so, if I'm writing one and, it, and within an hour it doesn't feel like the whole piece is nearly there, um, it probably means it won't work. And I certainly spend more than an hour on a lot of these, but it should cohere quickly because it means this idea really can sustain a whole piece. Well, you know, that's interesting to hear you say that because I find um, with humor, I guess with humor writing in particular, but maybe just writing generally that like there's something to writing kind of shooting out of you. Like when, when, when it's going well and going quickly that's yeah. a good sign. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to talk. I feel like maybe that's too broad, but I, I, I feel like that sometimes. Like when there's a lot of energy in the, in the moment and in the, uh, in, in me personally, or I don't know. Uh, I totally agree with that. Both, both in, both within any project, but also within a type of writing. I think I've tried other sorts of writing over the years, which doesn't, which don't come nearly as easily, and I've abandoned them not because. You know, I want to be a quitter, and quitters never win. Or, but I think it's actually a smart idea to go with. What are you? Not all of us can do everything. So, what are you good at? Most people are pretty good at at least one thing in the world, but very few people are good at a multitude of things. Well, and I just think a lot of it. We always want to be super Renaissance men and women, but we can't. And it's totally fine to not be great at everything. And that's even within a smaller section George Saunders has talked about not feeling he's great at certain kinds of writing. So he just ignores them in his work and focuses on what he can do. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing too. It's like, it's, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you don't want to be a quitter. Um, but I think there's a balance. I, yeah, no, I do want to be a quitter. It's, yeah. it's okay to be a quitter sometimes. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's a balance to be struck between, um, you know, giving up or whatever, and actually having an intuitive understanding of what you're good at. And if there's a piece of writing or a kind of writing that is resisting you and it's like pulling teeth to get it done, like sometimes that's just a sign and you're wise yeah. to, you know, wise to sort of recognize it. I agree that before this new novel of Love Song, Johnny Valentine, before this one, I've been working on another book for a year, uh, but before and after Capitol came out, that was like pulling teeth. And it, it was coming terribly, and I, it was agonizing. And I was lucky to get a couple hundred words a day if, if I was really pushing myself because it was just difficult. And then I got the idea for this book, again, one specific moment on a single day, and started and wrote a draft in six months. And it came so much faster, and I think for a good reason, which is that it's something I wanted to be working on and was better at than whatever I'd been doing before. So what was the moment of Janet? Like, what was the, the moment of insight where the, the book, the idea for the book came to you? 
Well, I've been working, there are a few. I've been working uh, volunteer tutoring at 826 NYC, which is the McSweeney's Connected um, After School Organization. And I've been seeing some of the kids there, one girl in particular reading pop star autobiographies. Um, I've been seeing a girl earlier that week, I think, reading Miley Cyrus's Miles to Go, which is <laughs> <laughs> great. I ended up reading it later for research. They're, you know, they're mostly pictures, there's a little bit of text, and they're essentially advertorials for the, for the musician in question. So my friend and sometimes collaborator, Mike Sachs, who's a... Yeah, I know. I've, actually, I've actually had coffee with Mike before. Have you? Yeah, a couple of years ago, or you know, I think it was a couple of years ago. He was out in L.A., and we met up. Okay. Um, it was just for fun. It wasn't like a business thing. Yeah, no, we were talking about, I think he was working on like the Funny or Die imprint and we were just like touching yeah. base. He he was familiar with the nervous breakdown and, you know, I don't know, we got in touch and met up for coffee. But. Yeah, he's a good guy. So he, he's been a fair editorial staffer and he's written for a lot of, written humor for a lot of places. And we've been collaborating on things since, I don't know, 06 or so, maybe something like that. And he, uh, he emailed me October 8th, 2010, actually. Um, that was a Friday morning, asking given ideas for a humor book we could work on together and crank out quickly. And I think he maybe had known I was working on this other novel, but maybe you know, I was not into it. So without really much premeditation, I found when people say, like, given ideas, even if I have no ideas beforehand, just that prompt will force, will suddenly inspire some ideas, but I need someone to maybe say that to me. And so I wrote, about we parody the pop star, teen pop star autobiography. And he wrote back saying that was a, a good idea. He liked it. And we both started working on sample chapters. And an hour later, I realized this is, this is a possibly meaty topic. And if I treat this seriously and write about it in a, in, in a, in a, with more gravity, it could make for a good novel. So he emailed him back saying, what do you think about me working on this in a novel? And he said, Final see why we can't do both. We actually ended up abandoning the pop star, the the parody idea. I kept writing it at a novel, and um, I never really stopped. Um, and it, and that afternoon, I wrote some like three thousand words for it. I've been writing, you know, next to nothing for this other book that had been a nightmare for me. So, no matter what, it was a sign that I should continue this other thing that's far more productive for me. Okay, so Johnny Valentine uh, is like a Justin Bieberish. Um pop star. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, the Simon & Schuster legal team has assiduously combed through the text and determined that any resemblance to persons living or dead is entirely coincidental, <laughs> what I've been told to, okay. told to say. Right, right, right. Okay, so... I guess but you can say, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it just, you know, that's, that's who comes to mind. And I mean, I think there's obvious um, parallels at least. And so uh, how, but, you know, you said you, you got this idea and then you sat down and, you, and like 3000 words shot out of you. So like how fully formed was this character and how much research did you have to do? Semi-formed. Um, his voice is also a strange mashup. Um, if Capitola was techno financial vocabulary, um, this one is, is the, the, the vocabulary of marketing and branding and advertising. Uh, I've been writing on and off for two years this very short business column for the New York Times uh, called the Drilling Down Column. It's now defunct. And each week I would interview someone who worked in media marketing 
and about some new thing, whatever it was, like our web ads getting bigger while TV ads are smarter, or something like that. And they very often spoke in this almost caricature of, of Brandon speak and would throw out terms like the digital space and brand, you know, branding ourselves and featuring assets on our new platform. And I was thinking, you know, these, these youthful pop stars are such brands and commodities themselves. What if one of them spoke half the time like one of these marketing executives and with a mashup of, of sounding like a child as well? So it happened upon this 11-year-old who has somewhat childlike grammar or, or jargon or vocabulary he pulls from, but mixed in with this, this veteran MPV ad execs understanding of how, uh, of how advertising works and how, you know, commodities work. And it was a little rougher at the beginning, but that's, it was fairly close to what the, the final product is, product, the final version. Speaking like Johnny Valentine myself. <laughs> well, but now it's interesting that you say this because, like, you know, I, I think about this a lot with regard to social media, and I think about it, um, you know, in the current publishing environment where everyone's out there trying to kind of promote themselves, and I, the same thing applies to music. I mean, it, it, it applies even when people aren't actively trying to uh, promote a, a, a piece of art. You know, it could just be somebody yeah. trying to kind of advertise their own lifestyle uh, on Facebook or whatever. But what did you learn in writing this book? Did Or did you learn anything that you didn't already know about fame and like how we market ourselves? Like, did you get some sort of insight into that that you didn't previously have through the writing of the book? I don't know if you're writing the book, but maybe the, the my first book coming out, not that it made me famous at all. Um, but I think I experience with every writer who gets a book published experiences, which is how strange it is to see something that had been a Word document for so long suddenly be put into the public for as a consumable object that people can criticize if they want. And it's it's a somewhat terrifying process because while you're immensely gratified and happy that you've been working on for so long, it's not out there. And now means it's it's public, public, and it's no longer just yours. And I was experiencing also what I think everyone goes through, which is it's crushing when someone, some out there, whether it's a, an actual legitimate reviewer in a publication or someone on Amazon, when they don't like your book. Um, I think I'm a little bit more near to it by now, but I was wondering what what does a real celebrity go through? How do, how do people who are actually famous, famous internationally even, how do they handle the much snarkier, nastier, crueler world that's out there for them and waiting for them? And uh, I don't know if the writing of it taught me more, but I'm, I'm, I think I wouldn't have been able to write this, at least as well, at least to the level it's at now, before any book had come out. I think it helped to have a little, like a, you know, a total Sandlot League level understanding of what it's like to be a public figure. Again, it's fiction, you know, book world, no one, no one cares about. Literary fiction, really no one cares about. So it's not like I'm Justin Bieber in any way, but, you know, once in a while you get a, a glimmer of what it might be like for someone who's, who's genuinely uh, known out there, just in your own little microcosmic understanding of it. 
And I think before this, I, I may not have been able to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's like if I were that, I mean, if if, if you were uh, somebody at that level of fame with that amount of, uh, you know, feedback coming at you constantly, like you just, you just could not go anywhere near the internet and you certainly couldn't be Googling yourself. I mean, the, the, the awful stuff that these people must be confronted with when they do that, it's gotta be difficult. You know, it's a, it's an interesting point to make because, you know, you think about, um, somebody like Miley Cyrus or somebody like Justin Bieber, like these people are easy targets for, um, you know, it's, it's easy to, to find ways to take pot shots and to be, um, I don't know, cynical or, you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. uh, but it's, uh, it's also, um, you know, it's also, there's also a, a human element to it. You know, it's gotta be very, very difficult to be, um, that famous period, uh, in some respects, but it's also to be that young and to be that famous, it's just gotta be such a strange world. Like uh, my wife and I watched, uh, the Justin Bieber documentary. On, yeah, I saw it. On, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on Netflix and I was, ca- I was totally riveted. He's a really talented kid. You know, like that's the thing. Yeah. That gets lost, but like those YouTube videos of him playing the drums and doing all drums this. when he's five years old. I know. Yeah, I mean, he's like he's truly, truly gifted musically, and um, but he lives in this strange bubble. And um, did you read the New York? I think there was a New Yorker profile of his uh, Svengali. I forget the guy's name. Yeah, uh, uh, Scooter Brian, the the, the Z Whitcomb wrote it. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, he, I mean, it's not so much about him as as it's just about Scooter, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just awful. It's a very fascinating world. It's totally fascinating. So um, when it comes to, you know, writing in this voice where the, the main character is sort of co-opting marketing language or, you know, the brand speak or whatever, you know, one of the things that I find, and, and you sort of alluded to something similar earlier when you were talking about growing up watching television and how you you kind of, you know, all of the, I don't know, the language of sitcoms becomes kind of ingrained in your head. Um, you, you know, when I think about um, the way that people present themselves online, when I think about the element of self-promotion that goes into being an author, just to give like a, you know, an obvious example, I'm consistently amazed by how natural it is for people to function in that capacity like we've been advertised to so much over the course of our lives like like almost infinite numbers of times that when it comes to actually having to go out and do that on behalf of ourselves like most people tend to be really natural at it that's what i find anyway you know it, natural in that they're unselfconscious you mean um natural in that like just like the you know people know how instinctively know how to advertise for themselves and how to like right. How to like you know? I think you've you've re- you've read enough interviews. You kind of know how to spin and present. And right, right. I don't know. It just it it's, it strikes me as being interesting, and it sometimes kind of gives me the creeps. You know, I sort of find, yeah. find myself questioning like, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> well, it's just funny how well I, I have a lot of self consciousness when I when I do so, and I always make a joke, especially in the last few months when I've been promoting things more heavily. Well, always make some kind of quasi self-effacing joke about when I'm putting something up and even on Facebook now, just cause I, you know, for unfortunately doing this stuff actually leads to, to more things. So you kind of have to do it. If you're, I mean, it's if your livelihood, I'm not, I never post things about my personal life, but career wise, I do put things out there because, you know, then editors I'm friends with, for instance, see it and they you know, think, oh, maybe she cover his book or give him some more work or something like that. 
so it's this deal with the devil you kind of have to make. Um, but I always make a joke about it so much so that this month I've started counting up for people numbering the self-promotional posts. So I'll put something up there like SP number 12 or something um, just because I feel so guilty and shameful that I'm doing it so much. Um, but there are people, yeah, for sure, who just do it. I can't do it. I can't just do like, got a great review in XYZ publication, exclamation point. I can't do that. It, it feels false to my persona. Um, but some people can, and it's, it must be a lot more fun to be them because they're not agonizing over every time they do it. So, yeah, so what do, what do you do? Like, you have Twitter, you have Facebook, and then you just, like, you just try to be judicious about how, how often you use it? Yeah, I don't put everything up that happens, and just, uh, it's, it's you know, maybe partially for some friends who actually want to keep track of things I write, um, and then partially in terms of building awareness, building brand awareness for the Teddy Wynn brand, but I, yeah, I, I'm judicious about it, I guess, and we'll try to put a little work into putting up there usually. So it's not just like throwing your face. I mean, it, the internet gives us this, this strange cover in which we're allowed to put up everything like that. But if in person, someone talked about themselves as much as they do, or talk about themselves in the same way that they do on Facebook or Twitter, no one could ever stand being around them. If you imagine <laughs> someone like thrusting a magazine in your face and saying, here's my new article. Um, which is what we do, and of course we're not forcing them to read it in, uh, over the internet. But you you can get away with things digitally that you can't physically. So what do you like when you look at your career? Um, and maybe you don't do it this way, but like when you, when you look to the future, do you have uh, like an idea of where you think you're headed or wh- where you want to be? Like, are you somebody who plots a course, or is it kind of just one day at a time? I outline it, but I give myself something. No, I, I, I have a, you know, a, a general outline. Um, I, I try to keep, you know, fingers in, in many pies if possible. So there's right now novel writing and, and journalism. Um, I'm writing a screenplay with the writer Amber Dermont, who wrote uh, the novel Starboard Sea. Has a short story question coming out called Damage Control pretty soon would be a very good guest for your show, by the way, if you're interested. Okay. Um, but, uh, so we're doing that and then we're going to TV pilot with her and another, uh, friend, uh, director, and her name is Raz. And so I'm trying to like have other areas, things that I want to be doing as well as a way to safeguard my future. But I would love to be, you know, trying to get back into screenwriting or TV writing, for instance. Um, yeah, teaching jobs, would be nice at some point in the future. That's hard to come by, especially where I am now in New York. But I actually do think I am sort of doing that middle ground of a vague plan, but it's not, you know, a month by month set of goals that I'm trying to achieve or anything. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I don't know. It just sounds like, I mean, based on what you've told me, like from a young age and then all the way up through, you've been good about, um, keeping busy. I mean, just the fact that you wrote a screenplay when you were like in high school, you know, like, or an episode of Seinfeld, like most people don't do that, you know, like, were you pretty precocious at that at a young age? I mean, I mean, um, I think I, if I get in a, if I have something that I'm working on, like a project, I think I'm fairly good at finishing it and getting it done. If I'm not, 
I'm I'm not a procrastinator, but I'm like a I'm a not taking on commitments kind of person. I'll I'll usually send off things that will take up my time and don't join clubs or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I leave these huge blocks of time uh, and preserve them for things in the future that I might want to do. But but if I, I, I have many days, even now, where I've got nothing pressing to do and, and I'm, I'm like loath to take on anything because it just makes me worry. But when I get the assignment, um, yesterday was a good example. I, I have this book comes out I guess a week and a half from now and next week is pretty, pretty clear. I just want to keep it open um, in case things come up, which they, which they often do. But the times uh, editor sent me this idea and I felt like, all right, I should, I should do this. Like this is not ideal timing, but I do have some free time most likely. And now that she gave it to me, I started working on it and, and you know, done some work just today. So, but I never would have come up with this idea. If I had come up with this idea, I would have waited till after like my book tour to pitch a tour, for instance. So it's, yeah, I think it's maybe efficiency more more than it is um, constant work. And then what about uh, like expectations management for the new novel? Um, do you have, I mean, you know, do you have like, an idea of what you'd like to see happen with it? Or you just kind of, uh, uh, I mean, I feel like, I feel like expectations with novels, it's, it's a dangerous game just because it's such a, yeah. it's so hard to predict, you know, what's going to happen. You know, yeah. Who knows? I mean, uh, free press, my publisher for this one, uh, I guess slash Simon Schuster, free press for this, it's and Simon Schuster. They've, they put a good amount of work into it. So I think they do have higher expectations than, than, than for, Maybe something else they would they might otherwise put out, or certainly higher for this one than my first book. Like what? What have they um, done? What have they done that makes you feel this way? Like specifically, they they uh, like they did a really a cool cover for it. The cover is this holographic foil reflective cover that um, reflects the prism um, as you as you rotate it. And I don't know how much it costs, but it costs more money than than a regular cover would, for instance. Um, there, I think there's some editors named Milton Bennett, and she's not just a superb line editor and, and editor of, of books, but um, is a very staunch advocate of her authors. And she's put in uh, a lot of work into convincing others uh, in Simon Schuster to get on board with this book. Um, so they, they've done some things. I don't know everything they've done, but I think they've, they've invested a lot of energy in, into me, which I'm totally grateful for. And I know this is uh, not always the case. Um, so I, I, uh, I think they're also just a, a good publishing house who does this for for most of their authors that they really try to to put work into into the books they put out there. Um, but yeah, the pressure's on. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for what it's worth, I think that, I think it's going to go well. And uh, I congratulate you on uh, all of your successes and uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck with this one. Thanks so much. All right, you guys, that's it. That's Teddy Wayne. Go get his new novel. It's called The Love Song of Johnny Valentine. It's published by Free Press, and it is available now, right this minute, for pre-order. And it can be purchased wherever books are sold as of February 5th. 
2013. You can find Teddy online at teddywayne.com. He's on Twitter at teddywayne1999. And I believe he's on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app, the official app for uh, this program, the Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, uh, or your Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives if you so desire. So uh, I think that's it. Uh, Hopefully that went well. Hopefully I will be back at full strength next week and uh, no longer under the influence of opiates. Please remember that Bertrand Russell was so physically inept that he couldn't even make a pot of tea and that Herman Hess died in his sleep at the age of 85. Uh, Okay, have a nice day. I'll be back again soon. Thanks again for listening. I think I'm going to go recline and convalesce and nurse my wounds and ingest medication. I'm going to watch some bad television and eat some good food. I'm going to drink fluids and I'm going to eventually drift off into a narcotic haze. (laughs) 